Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello everyone, Simon Mundy here and welcome back to the show. Now before I tell you about this week's guest, I want to let you know that this will be the last Life Lessons from Sport and Beyond episode of 2021. It's been a busy year and I do want to practice what I preach by unplugging and unwinding so I am downing tools for a few weeks. Now, since launching this podcast, first as Don't Tell Me The Score on the BBC over three years ago, I have not missed a single week, and that includes Christmases and New Year's. So now is the time to buck that trend and have a few weeks to reflect and come back refreshed in the new year. Of course, there are loads of timeless episodes in the back catalogue should you need a fix in the meantime. Anyway, to my final guest of 2021, who is a top performance psychologist currently working at Chelsea Football Club, where he is head of sports science and psychology. His name is Tim Harkness, and he's the author of the excellent book, 10 Rules for Talking, an expert's guide to mastering difficult conversations. Clearly, we live in really polarized times where largely impenetrable tribes have formed really around certain beliefs and worldviews. So having a guide to help us communicate effectively with people who don't share our opinions is priceless. Tim does a great job at outlining how to navigate the difficult conversations that persistently have negative effects in our personal and professional lives. After going through Tim's 10 rules, we then road test them by discussing a subject in which we take differing views and happily I can confirm we don't fall out. Better than that, we got on really well and I ended the conversation feeling like I had made a new friend. So that is a ringing endorsement for Tim and his work. 
So here is Tim Harkness talking about how to navigate difficult conversations. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Good, thanks, Simon. <laughs> it always makes me laugh, these introductions, because invariably I've been talking, for, or we've been talking for about 25 minutes before uh, yes. starting talking. But so anyway, to nice to check some in. Some kind of difference. There, there we go. Listen, uh, lovely to talk to you, Tim. Just tell me what your job title is at Chelsea, because we're not going to really go there. But still, just explain yes. your route uh, to Chelsea, as it were. Well, I'm head of sports science and psychology. I went into Chelsea as a psychologist and started practicing sports science, uh, closing in on six years ago now. I have those two responsibilities. So you've been through some serious highs and lows, but we're not going to go there. Uh, although congratulations on winning the Champions League. I'll keep a blank face. <laughs> but what we are here to talk about, so you wrote a very interesting and recommended book, and it's called 10 Rules for Talking, An Expert's Guide to Mastering Difficult Conversations, which I've read and I've taken notes. You've got some great quotes, I have to say. You've got a a knack for a good quote, Tim. You've got a lovely turn of phrase, written down loads of them. And I think to have a conversation about conversations, to talk about talking, it's an interesting topic and a much needed one, wouldn't you say? Yes. And... I don't know exactly why. And I think as human beings, you know, our, our memories can play tricks on us. And I grew up in apartheid, a country that was conflicted and had raging divisions. And, and in fact, you know, those divisions resulted in armed struggle. So I think it is important to try and apply context to whatever situation we find ourselves in. And I'm always a little wary of going, oh, well, you know, it's never been this bad. But we don't even need to kind of decide where we rate on the scale of struggling with current conversations to say that we are struggling with current conversations. There are a lot of topics that we're discussing as a society at the moment that are not being productive. People are very entrenched in their positions. There's a lot of point scoring going on. There's a lot of, shall we say, playing to the base. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording so you have some examples in your book and i'm not going to do any name dropping but what i found interesting and you mentioned apartheid is that obviously that had a very formative impact on you on your outlook yes you talk about nelson mandela in there and if i think of nelson mandela and when he was obviously released and then eventually became president of south africa yeah. And he came out and he was all about reconciliation and he reached yes. out to the white population, although actually, in fact, he could have won power even without that white population. So he That's wasn't right. playing to his base, whereas yes. I think the examples you give in the book actually are quite interesting because, as I said to you, the reason I recognize them is because they've been clipped into these sort of six, eight, ten minute segments on social media platforms and mm. they're designed in a way to infuriate or yes. you know get the emotion going and that's has slightly accentuated that tribal aspect of things yes because i think what social media does is it rewards engagement and it's kind of agnostic as to what kind of engagement so it doesn't care whether it's good engagement or bad engagement the other day actually i saw a clip of a footballer doing something embarrassing on a football pitch. He picked up a ball and he kicked it as hard as it could into a goalpost and then it smashed back into his own face. 
and he posted this on social media. And maybe the guy's got a great sense of humor, you know, that he can recognize that this was something funny that he's done. But maybe also he's just going, ah, engagement. You know, people are going to watch this. I'm going to get likes or, you know, follows or whatever. So I do think that is something different about social media now. The most important thing is that people respond to something. It doesn't matter how they respond. It's just that they do respond. Yeah. And I think that's taken away something from our discourse. Yeah, very much agree. And we know that negativity is more engaging than positivity. There's a reason that there's a saying in news, speaking as a, you know, someone who spent a lot of time in newsrooms, if it bleeds, it leads. So, I mean, that speaks volumes. So that's always been the case with newspapers. Switch on the news, it it always veers towards the negative. But obviously on social media, that's also true. So you get much more likes by going, you're bad, you're part of the problem, etc. than actually, by the way, has anyone seen uh, X number of people have been saved or produced this thing? Like, it's like, who cares? We want to get riled up. We want to feel that emotion. Mm. I think one of the things that we've got to do is talk about talking. And I think something else we have to do is recognize what we are as human beings. And I think we have to recognize our strengths and weaknesses as a species. And I think that tendency to be drawn to the negative is something we have to see in ourselves so that we can allow for it or compensate for it. We're not magic. There's this line in Catch-22, Joseph Hiller, and the main protagonist of the novel, he realizes at the end of the novel, man is meat. We're bound by the laws of nature. And I think sometimes we tend to think of ourselves as being infinitely free, but we are constrained. And the only way to become free is to recognize those constraints. And I think when we start to recognize the limitations in our natures and in our abilities, we at least can then adjust for them. I mean, an example of that would be with the pandemic, I was never concerned that humanity would discover a vaccine. And I was never concerned that we would resolve the logistics of that vaccine that we'd managed to transport and get people vaccinated because human beings are exceptionally good at logistics and we're exceptionally good at innovation. But tragically, there are also two flaws in human nature that are inhibiting the rollout of that vaccine. The one is our our tribal natures, that we care about some people more than others. So we care desperately that people within our own country get vaccinated, but we have very low levels of caring that people in third world countries get vaccinated. So that just doesn't make sense. But that is kind of implicit in our human nature. So we care about some people more than others. And we have to be able to adjust for that. And the other tragic element is that we're extremely good at learning. That's how we managed to figure out this vaccine. But something we're not that good at is querying the quality of the information that we are learning. And I think this is what gives rise to vaccine hesitancy, for example, and all of the conspiracy theories that arise from that is people learn very, very fast, but they're not good at learning about what they're learning. And you really have to have both to have an accurate and informed picture of the world. Well said. Before we get on to your rules for talking, can I just quickly ask you, in terms of as a sports psychologist, in terms of helping players, do people who perform elite sports to the top level need to have this ability to understand how to talk in the 
most productive way or is it not really important for them as people who generally perform on a pitch or on a court well i will say and you know i've i've worked in football but i've worked in other sports as well I've worked in olympic sports cricket rugby elite athletes tend to be very intelligent and they don't always have the reputation for being highly intelligent but in sport, you're playing against another human being, and it's a physical battle, but there's almost always a battle of wits as well. Do they have to be able to talk about talking? Not necessarily, but what you do find is that elite athletes in sports teams are extremely pro-social. And what I mean by that is that no opportunity to contribute to group cohesion, group enjoyment group pleasure, no opportunity is turned down. So if somebody makes a joke, everybody laughs. Because, you know, nobody rocks up to work one day and goes, I'm having a bit of a bad day. You guys have fun. I'm not going to join in. Everybody joins in on the fun. Because they understand that you have to do that because you always have to be building the team and contributing to the team. So there's a lot of work that goes into team building and they all implicitly understand it and they don't take a day off. And in terms of your work as a sports psychologist, how has building this framework for being able to have good conversations, how's it helped you in your role as a psych and as a father? You know, I think maybe when I was a young psychologist, everything was great because you sit in your room and somebody walks through the door and they obviously want to be there because they walk through your door and you have completely aligned interests because you both want that person to discover something or feel better in some way. So you actually couldn't have better conditions to have a good conversation. And I think what I realized when I began to work more broadly and as I got older is to try and take some of those very successful conversations that happen under those ideal circumstances and try to have more good conversations under less ideal circumstances where, for example, maybe the person doesn't want to be talking to you. Maybe your agendas aren't completely aligned. That's when conversations start to get quite challenging. And I do think sometimes we think we're good at conversations because we can have good conversations, but it's really about how are you able to perform under these less than ideal circumstances so being able to have a good conversation or the measure of being able to have a good conversation is not how well you could do it when you're getting on well over a couple of glasses of rosé of a summer's eve but when you're at loggerheads essentially when you're coming from different places when you have different views yes. etc and perhaps yes. even with some emotion thrown in as well that is Absolutely. the mark of it that's what we should be challenging ourselves with is can we have good conversations under those circumstances right in terms of difficult conversations then i think a good place to start tim why don't we start with the squirrel story okay <laughs> i had watched a youtube video of a lamborghini driving on a racetrack and a squirrel runs across the racetrack as this lamborghini is coming and the lamborghini is just going so fast that it rides straight over the squirrel and it doesn't hurt it at all and the squirrel just carries on running a couple of weeks later i was driving in my peugeot and I had my whole family in the back and I was driving along the road and the squirrel ran into the road. And I thought, well, you know, here we go. But the only problem was the squirrel, it wasn't running straight between my wheels. I thought I'm going to have to swerve slightly to get it between my wheels. And as I swerved, the squirrel stopped running and I just kind of ran it over. 
And my wife said to me, why did you swerve? Because if you hadn't swerved, you would not have run over the squirrel, which is completely true. And, you know, I, I just remember feeling just sort of overwhelmed. I just thought this is completely out of my ability to engage or I really lost my cool. I mean, I, d I didn't say anything, but, you know, my wife said to me, you didn't have to because your face was just saying it all. And then, you know, when I had time to calm down and sort of cool off, uh, I thought to myself, that shouldn't have been that difficult. You know, I, I should have been able to cope with that situation better than what I did. And in some ways, I think that was a, one of a number of incidents that made me think about my own ability to have good conversations under difficult circumstances. And um, that was one of them. So did you feel personally slighted by your wife's words? Yes, I did. And there are a few things that made it worse, like the fact that I wasn't in a Lamborghini, I was in a Peugeot. I'd actually done something, you know, I'd actually swerved towards it. You know, maybe if I'd been in a Lamborghini, none of this would have happened. <laughs> but yes, I, I think I misinterpreted what it was that my wife was really saying. And I also misinterpreted my wife's right to just maybe express shock herself. Why should she have to be perfect the whole time? Why should she, when something has just happened, give me a totally sort of processed and beige interpretation? She's also yes. allowed to spark up every now and again. But then, you know, when she says something, can I react to that appropriately? Can I kind of de-escalate the situation, which I wasn't able to at the time? That personal element or that personalizing things, how much of a factor is that in people's inability, do you think, to have constructive and good conversations? That element of making it personal. I think that's quite a big deal. You know, um, just warning you, I'm about to drop a name here. Here we go. Martin Seligman. When you ask a typical person about, you know, the great psychologists, they're going to say Sigmund Freud or Jung or someone like that. But actually, Martin Seligman is one of the big psychologists really in the field. Um, you know, he, he was a person who started working on positive psychology, which is an interest in what healthy people do rather than what unhealthy people do and, and how we lead good lives and fulfilling lives. And the name drop is I've actually met him. That, <laughs> what was that's he what like? I was building. <laughs> I've heard mixed reviews. He's a fairly brusque individual yes. and he acknowledges that he has a, a melancholic side. But I think in a way, this is the point is that we're saying, you know, we, we've got our human natures, we've got ourselves and, and part of our job is to manage that. And I think because he's aware of that, he works with what he's got one of the ideas that he has is that we need to be asking three questions about any situation. The first is how much of this is about me. Uh, the second is how much of this is always. And the third is how much of this is everything. And if we can have a better answer to those three questions, we can judge the significance of an event and we can have a more proportionate response. And I think to go back to that squirrel incident, for example, you know, my wife's just said something that I didn't want to hear. Well, how much of this is about me? I'm going, it's all about me. You know, she's having a go at me. This is what's happening. How much of this is always? Well, you know, she's done nothing but criticize me in the last 60 seconds, always happening. And how much of this is everything? Well, what else matters other than the fact that she's criticizing my driving? So having answered those three questions incorrectly, I've now calculated that this is a highly significant event and warrants a lot of emotion. And once I've got to that point, then, you know, the emotion is making it hard for me to have a sort of considered response. So Martin Seligman says, how much of it is about me? 
some people argue that nothing is personal. For example, <laughs> your wife was talking about your driving, right? That's your behavior. Yes. That's not yes. you, right? Yes. And, and I know this from holidays I've been on where there are various patterns at play and various dynamics at play. And, and you realize yeah. quickly, I think, that actually, it's just everyone projecting their own stuff onto other people. <laughs> so could yes. what do you make of the comment that nothing, absolutely yeah. nothing is personal? <laughs> All right. So what I do is I just take a slight detour and Go I'd say when, when I hear phrases like absolutely nothing or everything, a little red flag starts to wave. Yeah. And that red flag is about remember degree. Remember proportion. And this is another coming back to human nature. As human nature, we like all or nothing. We like black and white and we're drawn to that. We're drawn to the extremes. But I think it's more helpful and it's a more accurate view of the world to see the world as a proportionate place, yeah. a place where there's degree. So I think sometimes there may be a comment that is made that is quite a lot about us. And sometimes there's a comment that is made that is something about us and sometimes very little about us. So I wouldn't say that my wife's comment had nothing to do with me whatsoever, but it had fairly little to do about me. What did it have to do with you? You know, I've made a call on this squirrel and I've kind of taken a slightly left field decision to actually drive towards the squirrel. That is something that I've done. And, you know, could you argue that I have a tendency to take left field decisions? Maybe you could. So, you know, there it's starting to get a little bit closer to home that she said, look, you've driven in a slightly unusual way. This is linked to your proclivity to, you know, take slightly unusual decisions. And you're starting to get closer to kind of actually who it is that I am. So that would have been the element that has got something to do with me. The element that has nothing to do with me is the fact that she just got a fright. Um, she didn't want to see this poor squirrel get run over. And she just said something. But isn't your proclivity to take left field decisions? Isn't that about yes. your behavior, not about you? Well, my question would be, where does that behavior come from then? Habit. And, and what is habit? You know, what, what are we? Right. Part <laughs> that. Let's put a flag right. in there. Okay. And let's yes. come back to that before we get yes. too off topic. Because I do want to talk about your rules. There are some really valuable stuff in here. Like I said, you've got a fantastic turn of phrase. I'll just quickly say what they are and then we'll bash through them. So Excellent. rule number one, agree what you're talking for. Two, accept agreement takes skill and effort. Three, remember most people are good, competent and worthy of respect. Four, talk fast and slow. Five, keep the conversation safe. Six, use resilience. Seven, use rigor. Eight, use complexity. Nine, listen. And 10, reach out. Let's start at the top in terms of agree what we are, what you are talking for. So yeah, this is about not heading for completely different uh, aims and objectives, like agreeing on where you want to arrive at. Yes. When the editors were going through the book, there was quite a bit of debate about why don't we just call this agree why you're talking. And they said, you know, what are you talking for? Sounds a bit clunky. And maybe it does. But what I wanted to stress is that what you're talking for is explicitly about mm. a purpose. Yeah. Why you're talking may be a reason. And having a reason isn't the same as having a purpose, because the reason may be, why am I talking? Because I'm emotional, because I have an agenda, because you know I'm, I'm angry, I'm trying to score a point. Those are all reasons, but the purpose should be something more clear. 
and then it has to be agreed. You know, if I have one purpose for a conversation, you have another, we have no chance of success. And I think this is one of the points that, you know, rule one just gets ignored from the off. And I put it as the first rule, because unless you've actually got this, unless you follow this rule, you have no chance. And think of all the conversations that are going on at the moment about vaccines, about um, climate change, about inequality, you know, whatever conversation you may want to have, unless you've taken the time to get rule one right, you have no chance of success. So for anyone who wants to implement rule one, what would your advice to them be? What I would say is, in some ways, I'd go to rule two, which is that this takes time. You're actually going to have to work on this. But then I would say it's got to be clear. You've got to actually be able to say, well, how would we know that this conversation had succeeded? Let's say, for example, you and I are having a conversation about um, vaccines. I've got position A and, and you've got position B. How would we know that this conversation had succeeded? We would have to negotiate that and discuss that and come up with a, an actual statement. And it may not be something along the lines of, well, I will know this conversation has succeeded when you agree with me. Because that may be clear, but it's not necessarily agreed that we haven't both signed up to that. You know, how would we know that this conversation has succeeded? Maybe when I understand the uh, sources of information that you have used, when I understand the logic that you have applied to those sources of information, and the same for me. You know, maybe we can go, okay, I know what your, what your evidence is, I know what your logic is, and you, you reciprocate that. I'm just thinking in terms of something close to home, something practical. So a lot of people in relationships, married, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever. A lot of us have been at home with our beloveds for for a long time and spending a lot more time together. So that may, yes. and I'm actually not speaking from experience here. I may be, it may sound like I'm alluding to it. Actually, we, we, we've got a lot better at arguing over the years, my wife and I. But let's say for a couple who've had a row, what would you suggest as a perhaps a generic what are we talking for aim? Would it be right something like the aim of this is to return to homeostasis? You know, we're trying to get back on an even keel. Is that the kind of aim you'd want to set out? I think that's a great aim. It's a nice one because it's very focused. So you're saying you, you've had a row and you're wanting to sort, sort things out again. And, and the great thing about being married is you don't have to resolve everything. But there is that feeling of being on an even keel, having that sense of closeness, having that sense of being listened to, understood. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, critically, having a sense that you're back on the same team. Yeah. So it's like, well, let's agree that that's our purpose regain that sense of closeness and regain that sense of being on, a, on the same team. Then we can resolve the other issue later or we can come back to it or whatever. I think that's uh, spot on. So in terms of rule two, you've already touched on it already in terms of agreement takes skill and effort. At this point, you introduce things like complexity, the influence of emotion and the value of talking slowly, for example. Yes. I think, first of all, complexity that coming again back to, I think, human nature, that we've got this tendency that the more complex something becomes, the more simple we want it to be. And how often will you hear people going, this is a simple issue. There's just one thing that matters. And it's so easy to get involved in an argument about that. But I think if we just acknowledge complexity, 
it's immediately acknowledging that this may take time and effort. And I think as human beings, we're perfectly capable of taking on large tasks. It's just we only get discouraged when the task is larger than we, what we thought it was going to be. We built Rome. We discovered a vaccine. These are very, very arduous, massive projects, but we're willing to take them on because we accept from the beginning that this is going to be difficult and it's going to take a long time. And I think in some ways, the problem is not that conversations are difficult. The problem is that we think they're going to be easy. Then when they turn out to be difficult, we get disappointed and frustrated and distressed. Yeah. Whereas if you can walk in, it's going, look, this is a complex issue. Don't expect any easy wins. Then at least we're ready for the hard work that's going to come. Have a growth mindset, in other words, which good old yes. Carol, Carol Dweck, uh, and yes. you touch on that in your book, which is uh, a great mindset to have, and um, and acknowledging the influence of emotion. So if you're going in there thinking, okay, this is going to be easy, and then it becomes hard, and then yes. invariably when things are hard and complex and difficult, emotions arise, frustration, anger, blah, 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 and that's when w we can start making rash decisions or say things we might later regret. So how would you advise against guarding against the negative impact of overpowering emotion? Well, I think just recognizing the emotion is useful in yeah. itself. Yeah. I think also framing the emotion is useful. And, and this is a sports psychology technique is rather than necessarily seeing something as fear or anxiety, you, you could see it as something interesting or even exciting that were you to challenge me on something, I may actually feel a surge of emotion as you're challenging me on a difficult topic. But I could interpret that surge of emotion as anxiety, in which case I just want to avoid it. Or I could go, oh, that's interesting. That's exciting. You know, that, that, that's something that I'm now being challenged to explore and discover. So if I can reframe the emotion, I can have a, a different take on it. And in fact, I was working with a colleague some years ago, and we, we just kept on disagreeing about something. And eventually, I thought to myself, the fact that we're disagreeing means that we both care about detail. We're disagreeing on trivial things, but I thought, this guy is committed to detail, and so am I. And that actually shows that we have this commonality. That kind of shared value then was one of the foundations of our successful working relationship. And then the other thing with uh, emotion is just the good old timeout. When it's gone too far, walk away. Really, really valuable. That's so valuable. Take time to just step back, <laughs> let things settle. I'll use the analogy or the uh, the image Remember those things you'd get at Christmas and you shake it and the, right. the you know, yes. the, the little yes. snow, the snow, comes globe. Up, the snow yeah, globe, yeah. and yes. you just got to wait for it to settle. But unfortunately, yeah. when we're emotional, we have a habit to keep on shaking it, expecting that's it. that, that that's, that's a good it. way to settle. Yeah. And, and you talked about uh, reframing emotion and anxiety and excitement often can feel exactly the same. Take the example of two people on a roller coaster, one's excited, one's dreading it, but inwardly yes. physiologically they're the same and and in just yeah. turning it back to sport that's often the difference between someone who's mega successful or not is that ability to to welcome those feelings and not give it a storyline of oh my gosh this is bad but rather this is good like you said that can yes. be the difference at the top level can't it a successful framing absolutely right just quickly and then you mentioned about a timeout Talking slowly, though, I think this is so valuable as someone who is prone to speeding up when I'm stressed. 
well, probably like us all. So, you know, I've got two pet dogs and pet dogs only really have access to one style of thinking and that is fast thinking. Well, last night, in fact, they were both looking out the window. Somebody heard something, the one growled, the other growled, the one barked, the other barked. The next thing, they're both sprinting down the stairs and chasing out into the back garden. <laughs> because dogs do not have the ability. They're very intuitive. They, they pick things up quickly. They see everything and they react to that. And that's necessary under some circumstances. And as human beings, we have that quality also. We can think very fast. We're capable of immediately detecting patterns or immediately sensing things or coming to conclusions. But as human beings, we've got this completely separate way of thinking, which is slow, careful judgment, checking up on ourselves, error correction, error detection. And the key thing about these two separate styles of thinking, and obviously you'll recognize that I'm talking about Kahneman's thinking yeah. fast and slow. Danny Kahneman. And the key thing here is that sometimes it is appropriate to be thinking fast and sometimes it is appropriate to be thinking slow. And a conversation that is getting heated is a time to start thinking slow. You nod to Steve Peters's chimp model in there. I got the hunch or the feeling that you're not a huge fan of actually <laughs> of it. And, and I'm kind of with you on that, I have to say. I think right. as a metaphor for thinking, Okay, it's kind of all right, but actually simplistic or something like that. You prefer Danny Kahneman's System <laughs> right. 1, System 2 to well, Chimp and Human, right? I might be on fairly safe ground there, you know, to go with um, Danny Kahneman. But the point about System 1 and System 2 is that it's not a case of one being preferable and the other not. Yeah. You know, the work I do with athletes a lot of the time is getting them to think with System 1. You know, when you're a cricketer and you're facing a ball coming towards you at 100 miles an hour, it's all system one. And in fact, one of the cricketers that I worked with, a really remarkable individual, said to me, when he's at the crease, he tells himself to express his inner beauty. Oh, I read that. What a quote and that was. Loved it, it. Amazing. Shikha Darwin, an yeah, yeah. incredible person, yeah. incredible athlete, but incredible human being as well. And what he's saying there is so profound yeah. because... Often when we're under pressure, we doubt ourselves and we doubt ourselves. And when we doubt ourselves, system two takes over and we start to think more slowly. And he's saying to himself, don't doubt yourself. Remember that you are beautiful. Remember that inside yourself, you have good stuff. And remember that the best thing that can happen is that you be yourself and you trust yourself. And that's all true when you're playing cricket. And, you know, for elements of our lives as human beings, when we're talking and joking with friends, when we're having a romantic time or with our kids, there's so many situations where we do need to be system one. And I wouldn't want to call that a chimp. I wouldn't want to go to someone no. and say, well, you know, just go and be a chimp some yeah, of the time. Yeah. But there are also situations where we should be doubting ourselves. And we need to recognize that also. And I think that's a big skill is use system one where system one is called for and use system two where system two is called for. Nicely explained. And in sports, I always think of when Roger Federer is in full flow, much yeah. like, you know, the most elegant cricketers. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know that system one is running the show. And that's I it. think of when he squandered two match points against Novak Djokovic. System two was definitely in the driving seat <laughs> around that. Point. Uh, but outside, of, and you mentioned Roger actually in the book, so I know you're a fan. But outside of sports, I have to say in my own experience, the more I trust my intuition for decisions, 
the more it proves itself to be right. And if I give an example of that, okay, so I obviously get a lot of people ask me about coming on the podcast. And I think I've ignored my intuition a couple of times. I won't say who or what or anything like that. But whenever I have ignored my intuition, I've regretted it to some degree, not like, you know, terribly, but enough, enough that it's like, okay, you know, go with your feelings. So of course, that will be tempered by the slower, more reflective, what Steve Peters would call human thinking, the cortex, etc. But even in, in something like that, which would seem to be a bit more of a logical analysis, for some reason, it is my intuition that proves itself to be right. And now more and more, I just let that run the show. Yes. And I think the other thing about system one and system two is that they're not two independent systems. They're supposed to inform each other. Yeah. And I once went back in South Africa, had this corporate thing, and we'd organized a game walk in a nature reserve. In this nature reserve, they had a single rhinoceros. And before we went on this game walk, they gave us such a prolonged and vivid warning about the presence of this rhinoceros that every single rock I saw, I thought was a rhinoceros. And that was my system one, just firing. Every time you see anything big and gray, it's a rhinoceros. But that's happened with my system two priming my system one. But then also, my system one needs to prime my system two. That there may have been a case where I picked up, for example, that uh, I'd seen a snake or I'd seen a couple of snakes. And then I would need to take that from system one into system two and start saying to myself, well, do I need additional footwear? Do I need to start making more noise when I walk? Do I need to just get out of here? So that would be the interplay between the one and two. And they both feed backwards and forward. And I think what is so important about trusting your intuition or, or, you know, your gut feel is that it's telling you something. But then you take system two and you're asking yourself, well, what is it that I'm being told? And you reflect on that in a conscious way also. But if you didn't have that system one, your system two would have no information to actually work with. And Mm. that's a problem. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Rule number three, most people are good. I've written down a couple of bits here and you talk about a school reunion that you went to and, uh, you know, various people had been not very nice to various other people in it. And there was one chap who had been particularly unkind, but he wrote, I don't, I think he wasn't at the school reunion, but he wrote a letter basically apologizing to someone he had not been very nice to saying, you know, I'm really sorry. It had nothing to do with you. I had a huge chip on my shoulder, which comes back to my point, by the way, that nothing's personal. Right. Anyway, but yes. <laughs> smug Simon over here. Um, but yeah, so in this most people are good. So it's just understanding to see the best in people because actually there's a lot of it. Yeah, there is. That reunion, which happens three years ago, we, we've all actually stayed in touch. and We communicate now quite often and there are a couple of guys who recently have been going through some tough times and and there's been so much support and care. That is support and care that we wouldn't have been able to express as teenagers. But the one now man said, you know, we, we caused each other to need a lot of therapy and we were all just doing it to each other, not because we were bad people, just because we we were in a strange situation at a strange time. And I read this comment once is whenever somebody starts to doubt humanity, just go to the arrivals hall of an international airport 
and just see the love that people have for each other and see the joy in that connection, that reconnection, because that really is goodness, to be pro-social. That's almost how we define being good, as to a good person is someone who cares about others. And we are a social species. We need each other. And, and that, I think, is really central to our natures. It's almost a tautology that we're both social and good, because to be social is good. But what I would add to that is we are social, we're pro-social, but tragically, we have a limited ability to be social in that we define in-groups and out-groups. Yeah. And this is a tragedy of our natures that we have to recognize and work to overcome because we now live on a finite planet where we all affect each other. And if we do not recognize our tendency to prioritize some people over others and seek to undermine that, um, it's going to cause problems. You came out with a really nice line you can't hate someone once you meet them. Is that right? Am I getting yes. that from you? Or something that, that along wasn't those me. lines? My cousin right. said that. Yes. <laughs> but that is so wise, isn't it? And I think this is yeah. so true. It's like, yeah. you know, whether it be refugees or people from another country or whatever, it's so easy to think of them, like you say, as the, the other. Yeah. And, but yeah. then you get to know them. Actually, it just popped in my head as I was saying that from South Africa, the guy who started crying yes. when all the changes were going Rolf through. Mayer. Well, this you says know, it all. Yeah. Um, you know, I reflect sometimes on how profoundly strange the world that I grew up in was. I say that for a couple of reasons. The one is that I believe that I know how wrong things can go. When you've been living in a, a fairly functional society, you can get quite complacent about guarding against the worst of what human beings are capable of. And I grew up in a bad society and I never want to forget that things can go wrong. And when you're in that society, people can feel like it's normal and even reasonable and the right thing to do. And the other thing I would say is just because I grew up under apartheid doesn't mean that the rest of the world is absolutely li lily white and has never done anything wrong. So having said that, yes, I grew up in an environment where white people were separated from black people and did not either take the opportunity or have occasion to reflect deeply on the reasons for those separations. A friend of mine, some, he said something like, you're not racist or you're least racist or something like that. Mm. And I said, I'll never claim to say that about myself. Because once again, I think in human nature, there, there is this tendency for in-group and out-group. And I never want to claim to not being a racist. Because I think that's where complacency can creep in. And I always want to acknowledge that in myself, there is a risk of me behaving in a racist way. And there is a risk of me making racist assumptions. And I never want to deny that because I always have to guard against it. Mm. I have to actively seek to undermine that tendency in myself. The politician, Rolf Mayer, this is a memory going back, closing on 30 years now. I think I'm remembering it correctly that he told the story after a day of negotiations between black and white negotiators, asking the group if he could speak to them and saying to the black negotiators that he had become friends with, he had grown to understand, deeply respect, and trust the community that he was 
representing to entrust their well-being to the goodwill of these people that he was negotiating with. He said, I want to tell you that I was raised to believe that you were animals and burst into tears. And, you know, the first time I ever saw Nelson Mandela was when he walked out of the gates of a prison. I didn't know what his face looked like. I'd never been allowed to see it because we had censorship. And there was only one story that was ever told to him, which is that he was a terrorist. And, you know, you, we were leaked stories about him doing nasty things. And so we had no other source of information. And I remember clearly, and I went to a school that had black and white kids in it, which was unusual at the time, the 80s in South Africa. And I remember a black kid at the school singing a song about Nelson Mandela. And I thought to myself at the time, what are you doing? Everybody knows that Nelson Mandela is a terrorist. So I can actually locate that belief in myself. That is something that I believed at the time. I retain a crystal clear memory of believing it because often we're quite good at sort of fudging over the less savory things that we may have done or believed. And then to realize over time, not just how wrong I was, but how wrong I was capable of being. I think that was a useful experience to have had. Absolutely. And I'm going to challenge you quickly here. So you say most people are good, right? Yes. And then Nelson Mandela says, nobody is born hating another person because of the color of their skin, because of their background or their religion. The implication there being that nobody is bad. They've only learned how to be. Well, you know, when I talk about bad people, I'm talking about something quite specific, which is psychopaths. And I do want to distinguish between the bad things that people do and psychopaths. So psychopaths are a kind of parasitic form of human being that have something that is quite different to most of us in that they lack empathy and they lack concern for other people. So psychopaths probably aren't also born hating people because of the color of their skin. They're just born without empathy, and that can lead them to behave in particular ways. But I think the majority of us, we're not born into a group. We're taught that we belong to groups. Absolutely. And that's a problem. That's a a good distinction. Right. We've already talked about systems one and two, so talking fast and slow, which is your rule number four. So making sure that you are flicking between them. You've already touched as well on being wary of the use of extremes, language like always, everything, never. Also, I suppose you could add in disaster, catastrophe, you know, as people tend to use when they hit a traffic jam. Number five, I thought was a very interesting one. So keep the conversation safe. And you say, and I quote, emotional safety is important to all of us. So what is emotional safety? I don't know if you've ever watched the Slingshot channel. I think it was the Slingshot channel. I don't, have, you, have you seen the Slingshot channel? <laughs> no, I haven't. I don't get near don't the TV these days, to be fair. No, 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 no. This is the, it's a YouTube channel. Right, um, okay. This guy was pointing out that in Germany, it is legal for you to defend your honor with physical violence. So if somebody insults you and won't stop insulting, you're allowed to punch a person in the face. And what that is recognizing, because... They are not distinguishing between a physical harm and an emotional harm. And they're recognizing that an emotional harm is a real thing, that we have a real need for emotional safety. And 
I just think, you know, that that is something that we don't always acknowledge and that is something that we're not always aware of is how important it is to us to be emotionally safe. And to be emotionally safe, you could simplify it into two things. The one thing is that we need to feel respected. We need to feel that our status is being acknowledged. And the other is we need to feel that our wishes are being respected in some way. It's not enough for me to say to you, I think you're a great guy, but you want to go to the beach on Saturday and, and that's just not possible. You know, it's just not going to happen. Or, or it's not okay to say, look, you know, you can go to the beach. I don't mind, but I've got no time for you. I do not respect you as a human being. So how could someone who is not particularly skilled in the art of constructive conversations express or demonstrate emotional safety to someone who perhaps is a little on the sensitive side? Well, first of all, when things get a little bit heated. There are four actual techniques that you can use when things start to go wrong. And what we often do when things start to go wrong is we're just thinking, well, go harder, longer, louder. But what I can actually do is there are four techniques. And first of all, what I've got is apology. Look, uh, Simon, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, I just kind of went a little bit far with that. And it's so powerful to just apologize. The second thing that I can do is I can create a contrast. And that is to say, I wasn't trying to upset you. I, I can see that I've made you upset. But what I was really trying to do was just point out that XYZ. My third technique is perspective. Uh, look, we're disagreeing. But this disagreement in the context of our relationship is a relatively minor thing. So for sure, we're having a fierce argument, but you know, the big picture is that actually we're okay. And the fourth technique would be commitment. Look, things are going wrong here. You know, we're having this big argument. We're both upset. We're not seeing our way to a solution. But I'm determined to hang in here until we manage to resolve it. So those are four really practical apologize make a contrast, um, use perspective, and use commitment. Those are four ways to get safety back into a conversation when it's been lost. Very nice. And you, you quote a guy called John Gottman, who I hadn't actually heard of before, and he talks about the avoiding the four horsemen. So this would be the opposite, I guess. This is how to introduce yes. a lack of emotional safety. So he talks about yeah, yeah. criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, which yes. incidentally are all personal. Absolutely, yes. And that's what makes them dangerous, you know, yeah. is that you've lost this perspective on where your disagreement has come from. Yeah. And you've made it about we are disagreeing because of you. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's the problem. And, Absolutely. Yeah. So number six is resilience. And uh, there's another good anecdote of you back in the day when you were a young man being taunted by a chap called Angelo and <laughs> your boss said, don't rise to him. But anyway, yes. listen, some, they'll have to read the book for that. But um, okay. in terms of resilience, you give a lovely example, actually. I, I think when you're in practice or when you're in therapy practice and you speak about some women um, in particular who struggled perhaps with uh, difficulty around eating, and there was one example of one woman who came to see you and it was just overcome by emotion and it took resilience on your part to be there just as the sort of witnessing presence and your acceptance of her emotion uh, helped her to accept her own emotion. I thought that was a very powerful 
story and not what you would necessarily automatically think of in terms of resilience. Yeah. You know, as someone who's practiced as a psychologist, I think it's a real privilege to have conversations with people and to have intimate conversations with people. And hopefully one of the things that you learn over the course of those conversations is that life is more survivable than it can seem. And that's not to trivialize it. It's to say that that if we can stay calm, we can listen so that we truly understand. And we understand the detail and we're able to accept the pain that the other person may be experiencing. You know, it's not a case of going, oh, look, you're going to be fine. But knowing that this tragedy can be survived or this difficulty can be survived allows you to actually engage with that difficulty fully. And um, I think that for me would be resilience is knowing that this too will pass. Yes, which is one of the great mottos, right, that you can keep in your arsenal. But but I thought as well, the example you gave of you in that situation, you were being vulnerable, which was a form of resilience, which, you know, helped and and it was accepted. Yes, yes, because I can be vulnerable. I can experience the emotion. I can also feel the pain because – I'm not catastrophically afraid of the pain. I, you know, I may fear it, but I can engage with it. Yeah. So, yes, I, I do think from that point of view, it is a form of resilience or a form of strength to be vulnerable or, or to expose yourself, to be sensitive. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah. Number seven is use rigor. Uh, and I think this is uh, fantastic. And a quote I've nipped out is, the ambition with rigor is that we agree with the truth rather than with each other, which again yeah, is yeah. that sort of non-personal thing, is, is tr- seeking truth rather than uh, aggrandizing or your own ego or diminishing someone else's. 
Yes. And in some ways that comes back to rule one is uh, agree what you're talking for. And what we're talking for is we're both trying to have a correct understanding of the world, both trying to discover something true about the world that we live in. And then we're united in that source of discovery that we, we're co-scientists in a way. And if you know something that I don't know, I welcome that because by communicating that to me, you're adding to my store of knowledge and you're improving my understanding of the world. Yeah, I should welcome disagreement. I should welcome information that I don't have. I should welcome contradictory evidence because I want to have a richer, more complex understanding of the world. There can be no higher agreement in terms of what you are talking for than truth itself, wouldn't you say? Yes, but. <laughs> and, I love it. And this is kind of really, really important. And it, I'm not the one who said this or thought of this, but there are many different reasons for talking. Just one of which is to discover truth about the world. But there are other reasons also. For example, demonstrating that we both belong to the same group, entertainment, competition. So if we're talking to compete, if we're talking to prove that we either do or do not belong to the same tribes, these are also reasons for talking. And they clearly clash with this objective of discovering the truth about the world. Yeah. And you talk about seven signs of rigor. And I'll ask you, I'm going to let you this percolate. I don't want you to come up with all seven, right? I want you to pick right. one or two of your favorites. And while you let your mind percolate on that, right? Yes. I'm just yes. going to give a nice little anecdote about how Clive Woodward, uh, you talk about how he said that when they won the World Cup in 2003, he was like, what was so important was confidence. And you came back with, no, I, Clive, I'm going to challenge you there and suggest that it might have been the fact that you were well prepared, had really good players and were well coached. I'd love to have seen how he reacted to that. But, <laughs> but, but yes, that is a great example of rigor. It's being able to stand something up, essentially. Yes. So if I had to pick one out of the seven, and I generally resist this, but <laughs> it would be method. Right. Follow a method. Have a process for learning about the world because from the method comes accuracy. Have a checklist. Pilots in an airliner, they've just got books and books full of checklists. And when this situation happens, follow the checklist. And I think when we engage with complexity, it helps to have a process. Do you know what? I'm glad you picked that one because you've got this whole bit in there about the scientific method, which is what you're alluding to, isn't it, really? Yes, basically. So, suspending opinion while gathering all available evidence. So forgetting opinion, thought. Uh, yes. Rate the credibility and completeness of the evidence. Propose one or more precise, verifiable, probabilistic explanations that accommodate all, not just part of the evidence. And formulate additional queries and tests that could uncover new evidence or new explanations that could falsify or fail to falsify your explanation. The question, what would change my mind, is a useful check for this. So I'm glad you yeah. said that because that was the one that leapt out for me as well. So have a method and you can't beat the scientific method. And we might even come back to that, yes. Tim. All right. So we've touched on complexity already, I think. Um, so yes. I'm going to skip number eight and go on to... You know, something that is so undervalued, which is yeah, listening. Yeah. Now, yes. a quick anecdote, and I've told this one before. 
I did the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course, right? So John okay. Kabat-Zinn's hardcore meditation, 45 minutes a day. You have a three-hour get-together with the teacher once a week as well. And one day they said, right, what I want you to do is listen, but from a place of complete emptiness. So no thoughts in your head, no thinking about your next question, not trying to come up with a solution, nothing like this. And what was really staggering was when we all got together in the circle to share our experience of this listening from emptiness, should we say. Honestly, I would say 50% of the people there were like, I have never listened like that in my life ever. And it, it was really staggering. So, and I, it's something I've tried to do. And actually, it reminded me when you, you came out with the quote the purest form of listening is to listen without memory or desire, which to me, that sounds a lot like listening from a place of, of emptiness. So, yes, how can people be better listeners? Sure. Well, I think for starters, if you Google listening skills, you'll find a, a whole bunch of lists. And it's worth reading through them, you know, but, but the thing is, we all know them. We all know that you must have eye contact. We all know that you must nod. We all must know that you must say yes and, yeah. and, and that kind of thing. But yeah. I think a more interesting question is, why does listening get difficult? And why do we not want to listen sometimes? So how can we make our listening more resilient? Because we're all good at listening under ideal circumstances. So I think to recognize those situations where we might be tempted not to listen. And those situations are going to be, in South Africa, there's a, a phrase, khat full. And it means I'm, I'm full up. And when I'm full of emotional thoughts or things to do, it's harder for me to take anything else in. So the more khat full I am, the less inclined I'm going to be to listen. And, you know, this, this really comes back to your, your statement of listen from a place of emptiness, because when I'm empty, I don't mind taking something in. But listening is an act of absorbing. It's taking something from somebody else into myself. So on the one hand, it's got something to do with uh, my judgment about how available I am. The other judgment that I need to make is about the quality of what it is that you are saying. Because maybe you're saying something to me that I don't actually want to hear. And it may be because it uh, challenges some belief that I have about the world, or it may be because it contains some emotion that may be difficult for me or, or is unpleasant for me. Those to me would be becoming a better listener is recognizing the circumstances where I'm not a good listener. And, you know, maybe I'll come home at the end of a busy day and you walk in and you're not feeling good. To be perfectly honest, I don't want to hear that. I don't actually want to hear that. But can I rise above that inclination and recognize that for this relationship, it's actually going to be a good thing for me to overcome my own reluctance and listen? That's, yeah. I think, how you become a good listener is we're all good listeners. Some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's just recognizing that we need to be good listeners more of the time. And that actually comes back to your initial point about we're all good at conversations when they're easy. It's about being able to do them when we're tired, when we're 
Huffful or whatever the word is. That's it. Was that, no, was that's that right? Good. Was that's good. That's good. Um, yes. Whatever. We're full of emotions and thoughts and and yes. being pulled from pillar to post and tired. That's when this kind of stuff comes into its own. Right. The final yeah. rule number ten. Yeah. Which uh, another one I thought was was lovely, and I could think of so many examples in my own life, in my marriage, with friendships. And fun enough, I actually think every podcast I was reflecting. Pretty much all of them start with a bit of a bid, even if it's a bit of yes. a jokey bid. It was just something that ha- that I do, but it wasn't until yes. you wrote this down. I thought, God, yeah, I think I'd do that. Um, and then you give a lovely yes. story about Nicola Sturgeon and Theresa May. So Nicola Sturgeon, who on the one <laughs> yes. hand, you know, was um, came out, you know, I don't want to say necessarily more emotionally intelligent than Theresa May. I don't want to make a judgment. I don't know either of them, but came out and was being socially clever shall we say and it just went right over Teresa's head so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just landed like a lead balloon <laughs> yes yeah, she, she complimented Teresa May on her shoes and just went nowhere you know <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is the thing of a bid is a bid is it's an offering and they're so useful in so many circumstances and you know when we started this podcast when we, we got on the line with each other, my microphone wasn't working. And, you know, that's why I'm wearing my son's gaming headset. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. You know, that's an opportunity for a bid is that we can either reach out in that circumstance and we can use this difficulty to actually build a relationship and to show that despite this difficulty, we retain an interest in each other and an interest in working together. That's a bid is it's just a way of saying, I want this to work. And despite the circumstances, I want this to work. And, you know, it's going back to John Gottman again, the relationship expert, who said that successful relationships, successful romantic relationships between couples, one of the key indicators is when bids are made and accepted. And it's a really powerful thing, you know, and to go back to your example of, you know, you you just had a big argument. Sometimes you just need to make a bid. And that might be, you know, touching somebody in the arm or a little smile or, you know, pull a bit of a face. And it's just saying, look, we're having this big argument. I wish we weren't. And it's such a powerful thing. Yeah. And the importance of turning towards bids as well. Yes. Yes. Is that something you can talk to a little bit? Well, I think I moved to this country. I was 37 years old, South African. My dad's English, got a British passport since the day I was born and, you know, came here, got a job. My uncle said to me, when are you leaving? (laughs) How long are you staying for? My English uncle. (laughs) I thought, it doesn't sound massively welcoming. (laughs) Um, I think this is a guy who has a little concern about immigration and applies it even to his own nephew. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think bids, it's about recognizing that we are on the same team. And, you know, going back to that, one of our greatest strengths as human beings is our capacity for love and our capacity for loyalty and the fact that we bind to each other. But tragically, that exact strength is also a weakness because we love some people so much and because we are so loyal to some people. It means that we love some people more than others. And you can't conceive of a world where you don't love some people more than others. But 
but I think part of managing it is conceiving of a world where we don't have such a, a sharp distinction between responsibilities towards some people and others. And I think this notion of bids and recognizing that we're together in this, especially at a time when the world is becoming a finite place. We don't have all of infinity to go off on our own separate little groups and never have to interact. We do have to interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And that means that if we can actually make ourselves part of the same team, those interactions are going to be more successful. Yeah. Just to add to this a little bit, um, this is born of my own relationship and recognizing that people like different types of bids, for example. Yeah. So, yes, for example, yes. my wife first of all, makes bids in a certain way. And I like to receive them in a certain way. And I am a little bit different. I like yes. to receive certain type of bids. You know, if she's helps me with something or I don't know, I won't go into too much detail, but it's a little bit different. And something that's really helped our relationship, and this is all credit to her, is understanding what sort of bid your partner in particular likes. Yeah. Yes. And working to that frame, not your own frame. <laughs> Yes. Do you agree with that? Does that resonate yeah, with you? Absolutely. And, and this is the thing about a bid is a bid is a subtle thing. So it has to be interpreted correctly. And that's part of building a relationship is building up this repertoire or this vocabulary of bids that work. And, you know, that they've got to be shared for them to work. Yeah. I'll tell you what, as well, you came up with some really nice distinctions between charm and charisma. Charisma is something you have charm is something you use essentially and yeah. but, but a beautiful definition of friendliness which is offering without insistence so it's it's a gift without any expectation of something yes. in return yes. which is yes. something we could do with a bit more of i think yeah and to have given you know not to have traded and then th th that's a matter of trust i, I think giving involves trust and it's a, it's a profoundly optimistic thing to do to give yeah and I think the modern world likes to talk about optimism and hope and belief and faith. And I do believe in those things. I hope for us. I hope for humanity and I hope for society. And I trust in us as human beings. And I think one of the ways of expressing that trust is to give freely and to care freely and to accept that that alone makes the world a better place and when the world is a better place i benefit from that yeah there's such a different energy between a gift an offering a non-conditional offering than like you said a trade so if you're doing <laughs> yeah. something to get something back on some level i think you can sense it you know it's yeah. an almost a sense of controlling we're back into system one and system two here but i'm sure it picks up on it you know i think there's a subtle texture to when someone is doing something when you know that it comes with a little scoreboard in the back of their mind Absolutely. as opposed to just here you go here no no i want nothing back from you this is just pure giving yeah you know to move from transactional you know my cousin who was the one who said it's it's hard to hate someone once you've met them when he was a little kid it was one christmas and he's two years younger than me and you know i might have been six old enough to give people Christmas presents. And he was only four, so he wasn't. And um, I gave him a Christmas present, a bar of chocolate or whatever. And and he, he reached out and he, he squeezed my hand as a way of saying thank you. And 
you know, never forget that. Yeah, that's lovely. Just, no, I don't know. You know, I don't know what that is, but it it, it wasn't a transaction. No, um, that's that's beautiful. I mean, and it, and actually, that shows as well. These don't need to be big things, do they? Yeah. Bids that. I mean, that was a a beautiful bid from a clearly. Uh, I mean, he sounds like a very emotionally intelligent chap. Your cousin, yeah. I have to say. Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Who knows? <laughs> no, he's a, he's a good guy. He's, he's a good guy. guy. Yeah, yeah, he certainly sounds it. But it shows that a bid does not have to be a big thing. It can be, like you say, yes. a squeeze of the hand, a touch on the shoulder, a wink, and I love you. Absolutely. Let me make you a cup of tea. Look, I'm sorry. You know, there's any number Absolutely. of things, but it, it yes. can be so small, but can completely yes. change the dynamic. Yes, completely change. So heartwarming. Yeah. 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 Right. Putting it all together then, Tim, beyond obviously just encouraging people to go out and buy your book and digest it and, and put it into practice, if you had to um, sort of summarize, as it were, how to become better at mastering difficult conversations, you know, if yeah. you had to put it into a couple of lines, what would you say? Yeah, what I would say is um, I had to answer the question to myself, why am I writing this book at all? Because there are some fantastic books out there written by people who are far more expert in the field than I am. And... <laughs> Let me just qualify that. I'm not particularly an expert in this field at all in that, you know, it's, it's not my primary area of practice. I'm a sort of enthusiastic amateur, really. What I would say is that successful conversations require two things. They require emotional intelligence and they require the ability to determine the truth about the world. So they require rigor and emotional intelligence. And a lot of communication books deal with the one or the other when actually we need to be combining them together. And that's what my book is about, is having a rigorous scientific view of the world in an emotionally sensitive way. Well put. That's beautiful. Right. This feels like a good time to return to that flag in the sand. Do you remember that? It was a while ago now. So yes. I think the last thing you said, let's go there. Let's just have a bit of a chat, See see how this bit goes. Great. Using the uh, techniques, skills, and things that come in your fantastic book. So I think the last thing you said was, because I'm arguing that ultimately nothing is personal, okay? And yes, yes. The thing that struck me about your book is that actually, whether it be you running over your squirrel in your, was it a yeah. Peugeot or a Peugeot, Fiesta? Peugeot, Peugeot in three, your per- 307. Yeah. <laughs> Peugeot 307 through to the guys that you're back in touch with after your reunion and the sort of the untoward behavior that went on. My argument is that pretty much if if things were not personalized, difficult conversations would automatically become easy. That's something I'm asserting. But I think a good place to pick up is, I think, what did you say? You say, who are we? Right? So I I, I, want to ask you, so if I was to say, who are you? What's your answer? Right. To me. Yeah, to you. <laughs> Not sung from a football terrace. <laughs> <laughs> we could do that at the end just to finish All off right. with an applause. Who are you? <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to answer in that way. No. Who am I? Uh, what I'll say for starters, that's quite a difficult question. Yep. And also, it's not a question that I'm used to getting asked. Now, I'm kind of sitting here feeling a little surprised because I'm thinking this should be easy. You know, I I should know who I am. I should be able to answer this. I think what I would say for starters, I'm a collection of roles. I'm a husband, a father, professional person, a son, 
I'm a brother. That would be the one sort of category of answer that I could give. Another category of answer would have to do with my experiences that I've lived through. I'm a South African. I'm, I'm a white South African who grew up under apartheid. I'm an immigrant. I live in this country. I've worked in this industry for this long. Um, that would be part of who I am as well. I'm a, a set of values, uh, you know, things that matter to me. My family are Methodists, and um, many of the principles of Methodism resonate with me deeply and and are principles that I try to live to. So I would say that as a, as a collection of values. And then I have a, a set of uh interests and inclinations. You know, I'd, I'd, I like to have fun. I like to compete. I like to play. I'm able to entertain myself. I don't drive an expensive car, but I, I'm not shy when it comes to buying toys for myself. Um, <laughs> so that, that's how I justify it. Right. Okay. I drive a very old car, but I've got nice toys. Um, <laughs> so, so that's me as well. And, and then, you know, maybe finally I would say I do possibly try to see the world not as it is presented to me. You know, I, I try to unpick it a little bit more than that. I, I would say that is also part of who I am. All right. Well, that that last one is going to be helpful because so I'm just going to, if you don't mind, challenge you on a couple of bits. Yes. And, and keeping in mind the old scientific method, so what, uh, which I've got here. So suspend opinion. So we'll gather evidence, completeness of evidence, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yes. So, you started by saying I'm a collection of roles, okay? So father, yes. brother, psychologist, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? Yeah. If you weren't a father or a brother or a psychologist, would you still be you? Yes. <laughs> I think <laughs> if for example I'd never had kids and I've you'd still you be know, you. I I think so. Yeah. If I'd never got married, yeah. I think so if I yeah. you know and you talk about your experience, so so you're South African. You know, if you'd have been born yes. in in England, would you still be you? Now that's a little harder to answer because for me, this is all about degree. The reason why I'm a psychologist is because I never got accepted into biology honors. I wanted to be a biologist. So let's say I had actually worked a little harder and you know got accepted into that course, and I was a biologist studying great white sharks, which was my dream. Yeah. Um, would I still be me? Yes, but I'd be different. But you'd still so, be you. Well, th there'd be overlap and there'd be quite a lot of overlap, but there wouldn't be complete overlap. I don't think I'd be exactly the same you, person. You'd have a different character. You'd yes. have perhaps a different personality, a different yes. set of interests, possibly even a different set of values, but you'd still be yes. you, right? Yes, because for me, it's not a binary issue. I'm either me or I'm not me. Their degrees of overlap. And that's, you know, that alternate, what's it, that, you know, alternate universe or whatever it is. And maybe there is a universe out there, you know, but I think there's quite a lot of overlap, maybe 80% of overlap between the shark scientist, Tim, and the sports psychologist, Tim. Maybe there's 80% of overlap. The Tim that got born in England and the Tim that got born in South Africa, maybe there's only 60% overlap or 50% overlap. Yeah. But let's say you got ill, you yes. know, and you didn't, thank goodness. But let's say you got ill when you were young. And as a result, yes. 
studying great white sharks out the window right leaving yes. south africa out the window yes uh, I, I don't know Let, let's say you, um various other things happen which meant you couldn't become a psychologist so all those things couldn't happen yes like your intri- intrinsic you like you, the essential yeah, yeah. you it would still be you wouldn't it the you that was born getting rid of all roles all experiences even right. all interests because you know i know you like to have fun you like to compete can play but sometimes you don't want to have fun sometimes you don't yes. want it but you're yes, always yes. there so i'm just trying to be really irritating but yeah so what i'm, I'm comfortable sort of get- with this yes yes yeah. comfortable with this. okay good all right so i i'm just trying to assert that the idea that without your roles without your experiences without your interests even without your values you would still be you at the essential level is that fair possibly well not I the you that you think you are, but just you. Yes. I, I think what you're referring to, and I'm tempted just to say yes. Just do it, Tim. You know, because <laughs> no, I, do, <laughs> I do agree with you. And I certainly intuitively agree with you. So, you know, system one is going absolutely, you know, 100% agreement. System two is going 80% agreement. And... The reason why System 2 is not fully committing to an agreement on that is because I think this notion of an essential self, because this is really what you're referring to, is you're saying yeah. there's an essential self, yeah. and there's an essential self that is born into existence. I'm not saying that bit, but I am saying there's an essential self. Yes. Right. And my question would be, my concern my yeah. hesitation. Yeah. While having said, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. part of me completely agrees with you. Right. Most of me. But there's a little part. This part says that maybe this notion of the essential self is more complex and less valid than it seems. That maybe to some extent, this notion of the essential self is illusory. And we're not actually as of a piece, as we may think. In some ways, you know, that, that, that kind of problem about when I, when I moved to this country, I, I bought a bicycle and I've still got that bicycle 12 years later. No original parts on that bicycle still exist. But is that still the same bicycle? I think in a way, it's almost that is for sure, we're a collection of memories, we're a collection of, you know, actual physical cells and so on. But is there an essence that is independent of that? Right. Okay. So all valid points, right? And I think we're demonstrating, you know, a potentially tricky conversation very well here. We're modeling one nicely, right? right? So far, so, so far. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're not finished yet. No, 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 you're right. Okay. So you're, you said that system one, so your intuition, yes. right? Yes. Uh, agrees, intuitively yes. agrees. But yes. the system two, which Steve Peters refers to as the human yes is the thinking mind yeah and you could say that's the ego right you could say that that is where we people talk about self-image for example that's where that would lie our self-image lies in part two not part one right i think there's interplay between the two okay because i think there are elements about my identity that are not just sort of consciously reflected on i think i can be very intuitive about my identity Mm. Let me just ask you this. Quick thought experiment. You up for this? Absolutely. All right. Have you ever experienced in your life anything that is not one of the following things? 
a thought, yes. including memories, images, a yeah. feeling, including all emotions, sadness, happiness, guilt, whatever. Sensations, that slap that I just felt on the face, my bottom on the yeah. chair, uh-huh. the feeling, in fact, of my body right, right yes, now, yes. sensations, and perceptions. So what I can see, what I can hear, what I can smell, what I can taste, etc. Have you ever experienced anything that is not one of those things? It's not one of those things. Um, so we've got thoughts. Thoughts, feelings. Feelings. Sensations, perceptions. And perceptions. Yeah. Obviously, perceptions using those the five sensory organs. Yes. Seeing, hearing, feeling, touching, smelling. Yes. I can't. No. No. I can't no. think of. No, there's nothing else, right? <laughs> so everything yeah. falls into that category, right? Yes. But has any one thought, any one feeling, any one sensation, any one perception ever remained consistent throughout your life? Do you mean just. Like a thought, I don't know. I, like, I thought I want to study sharks. Like, has that been there from day dot till right now? Always, always there. Has any one thought or any one feeling, sadness, happiness, any one sight, any one sound, any one sensation, always. Just like a constant tone, yes. always yes. unvarying. Yeah. I would answer no to that. Right. But have you been present throughout your whole life? I think so. Yeah. So that means, would it not, using the scientific method, the deduction we can make is that you are not a thought, a feeling, a sensation, or a perception. And the roles, experiences, values, interests, etc., yes. they they could be classed as, for example, like a role is essentially identifying with a thought to some degree and an action and a behavior, right? But so what we can deduce from that then is you're not a thought, you're not a feeling, you're not a sensation, and you're not a perception. Is that fair? Essentially. If you've always been present throughout your life, but they come and go, that means you can't be one of them, essentially. Well, how about this for a question? (laughs) Hit me up. Have you ever not had one of those things? Yes. When you're sleeping? Yeah. Deep sleep. Occasionally when I'm lost in the moment. Occasionally, um, at other times, yeah. But I think it would be fair to say, if you cease to have those four things, yeah, you would no longer be no. yourself. But I'm going to challenge that and say, is that definitively true? So does that mean that during deep sleep, you cease to be yourself? No, I, I don't think you do. But deep sleep is temporary. Yeah. I think... Is anything present during deep sleep? Well... I mean, physiologically, there is. But in your experience? You know, I don't know because I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you can't remember. So, and, and that's a very revealing comment because if you can't remember, yes. that means there's nothing to be – basically, there was nothing to be aware of. There was nothing to remember. The rem- something to be remembered and then that which remembers. So anyway, if I just elaborate a little bit is that yep. something that is often overlooked – I am going to relate this back to your book, but something that is often overlooked is that the one element of experience that is always present, but that is not a thought, a feeling, a sensation or a perception, and is therefore not a thing, is the simple fact of being aware. So right now you can hear my voice and you are aware of the sight of me. And even in deep sleep, you know that you are aware because 
have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night? Yeah. Yeah, right? So the awareness, awareness itself, which is not a thing, is always present. Therefore, by deduction, the fact that it doesn't come, doesn't go, doesn't start, doesn't end, is aware of every thought, every sensation, every perception, etc. That means essentially who we are is awareness. <laughs> I know you're looking at me like I can't wait for this call to finish. Anyway, <laughs> but but so and I'm not I'm just asserting certainness. So how I'm going to relate this back to the book is if we yes. if we look at for example when you ran over the squirrel, yeah, through no fault of your own, okay. Thank you. I mean, it, I, finally, finally. <laughs> yeah. Now, you took that as like a personal affront, as yes. you know, like you say in, in the emotional safety chapter that we need emotional safety is because we feel like a self is being affronted, and I, I found that fascinating. Yes. What you said about Germany, about like if your self is insulted enough, you're allowed to punch someone in the face. Yeah, yeah. But what I would assert is there is no such self. There is no thinker of thoughts. There is just awareness that is aware of thoughts. Thoughts pop up. We're aware of yeah. them. And yeah. we later claim them to be ours. But actually, all they're doing is popping up into awareness. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so first of all, I do think this is an extremely interesting topic. And I think this is a very relevant topic to us as human beings and I also think that you and I are not the only people to have had this conversation. Definitely. That these are quite central issues. And not only that, you're making them relevant to our discussion about how should I engage with the world. And in some ways, I, I think what you're saying is the more free I am from the attachments and the more essentially I can become an awareness, the more able I am to resist or to misinterpret the slings and arrows of that may be cast in my direction. Well, the, I would say rather than resist or misinterpret, I would say the less able there is, they are to stick or to land because there's nothing yes. to land on. Yes. Even you could say the, the need for emotional safety isn't quite there because there's no one at the center of experience that needs to be safe. Yes. And that is, that is a way of understanding the world um, that is shared by many people and, in fact, is the basis of the religion of Buddhism. So I'm not going to sit here in my bedroom and <laughs> take that on single-handedly um, because I think it is an approach that has – proven itself in the lives of countless people. But, well, not to say but, but maybe to say and, because I'd maybe want to add something to that debate. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that this worldview has been around for thousands of years and has been embraced by millions or billions of people, we as human beings retain our quarrelsome vindictive, emotional, mistaken, contrary behaviors. Could that be, just to interrupt him, because not enough people, there hasn't been the tipping point of people who have been able to clearly see what I'm saying here, which is, so you, you kept, what was that beautiful word you came up with? Hatful. 
right? Yes, yes. Full of emotion and thought, right? Now, we tend to derive our identity from those two things. Thoughts, I am kind, I am uh, a journalist, I am whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm angry right now or whatever, right? So we tend to derive, and obviously, chaffal is when you're absolutely chock full, but we're often full of them to a degree. But the thing is, you know, we're not emotion. We're not thought. We are aware of them. They come and go, but the the awareness doesn't. And all all I'm suggesting is if, and I'm not saying this is true, by the way, I'm just asserting that if enough people recognize that the self who we think gets offended doesn't actually exist, then the world would actually be a very different place where we wouldn't have perhaps this tendency towards tribal in and out, us and them, because it would be like, actually, I mean, what? You know, we, we are ultimately, I don't want to say we're one, but we are certainly the same at, at our essential mm. level. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I know this is getting a bit philosophical and, and, and a bit deep, but, you know, rather than practical <laughs> necessarily, although you could argue. I mean, what could be more practical than to try and understand how to make the world a better place? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And... You know, one of the things I like to ask is, is that an answerable question? Could we answer that question? Which which one? Would the world be a better place if more people were exposed to this idea? I wouldn't say exposed to it. I would say saw it. Because throughout this, there's this whole thing about, oh, people need to be respected. People need to blah, blah, blah. We all have this idea uh, and it's a shared one and and it's a valuable one, I think, within the frame of, the world in which we live, you know, treat with respect, et cetera, et cetera. I completely agree with that. However, uh, I spoke to Sam Harris recently. Do you know Sam Harris? American? Mm. Okay, interesting chap. Anyway, he he was talking about this. Uh, The episode was entitled The Self-Delusion. And it's exactly this, that through meditation or whatever, or just by simple self-exploration, it's to understand there is no self at the center of experience. Then, you know, we don't need to be like on the guard for, Oh yeah. my God, there's this personal attack because there is no person at the center of experience to attack. And yes. therefore, we can simply focus on ambition with rigor, striving for truth rather than personalizing things that were not personal at all. Yes. Now, you know, what I would say is this is such an interesting conversation and it's a really central debate. It's a political debate also. Because people on the left and people on the right fall in quite different positions on this debate. Well, they do and they don't because they they take contradictory positions on this debate. Because we're talking about that notion of what is the self. And in some ways, this is also a discussion about a blank slate. Are human beings blank slates or are human beings born with a particular set of psychological needs and desires. And it's also a question about social justice in that, should I strive to make myself independent of needing affirmation and support and respect from other people? That I think that is part of the question here also, is it's not just about what is true, It's a question about what should we strive for? Mm. Should we strive for a world where people are so aware of 
just their essences, that they don't need to be respected by others? Or should we strive for a world where people have these maybe even inherent needs, but are respected by others? And, you know, this is a conversation about, in, in some ways, this comes back to that debate about resilience. Should we be making the world a place where more people are more resilient, or should we be making the world a place where less people need to be as resilient as they are? And that's actually a political debate. So I think what's additionally interesting about this discussion is that it's not actually a discussion that takes place in a vacuum. It's a discussion that is connected to attitudes around social justice. It's connected to political issues. It's not just a philosophic debate that we're having here. I think that's an interesting point. I would assert that both left and right think that they're people. They just think that they've got a different view of whether, let's say, it's look after yourself or look after others, should we say, to summarize, yes, yes. right? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. By the way, I completely agree. Like, our mind and our body, we come in, we're conditioned, we have certain tendencies, likes, etc. blah, blah, blah. Perhaps yes. some of them we're born, you know, our minds come from our parents, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. And conditioning, you know, you grew up in South Africa, lots yes. of great white sharks probably contributed to your interest in great white sharks, right? Yeah, yeah. Etc. Yeah. So I, I completely acknowledge all of that. What I'm saying is that prior even to that, there is nothing but awareness, which has no qualities other than it is, and it is aware, right? If we understood that that was not just my essential self, but your essential self, it is the same in me as it is the same in everyone, then the answers of resilience, it's not about that because it comes back to the old thing of, well, if I harm you or I disrespect you, I'm disrespecting myself essentially at the same time. So, mm -hmm. so, for example, there's a, a quote, St. Augustine, I'm not religious, yeah. by the way, um, St. Augustine said, love and do as you will. And what he meant by that is love as in see the self of the other person as yourself. And it, with yeah. that one understanding, then you can do what you want because you understand that, for want of a better word, we're at our root core, essentially speaking, we're all the same. Now I know that's a bit a bit out there, but you know, but as we were taking it into the into the realm of politics, I, I would assert that rather than this idea of left and right, which to me, without this understanding, is perhaps shuffling the uh, without going too overboard, shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. With this understanding, you can dispense with left and right completely, which is ultimately just tribes. Yeah, <laughs> I think the world is more complicated than just being divisible into left and right. But I do still think I'm still interested in this notion of what are we? And Martin Seligman has something to say about this. And I do think that's quite a profound question. Is my essential self something I can separate from a set of needs and desires? Is my essential self something that comes packaged with a set of needs? As a human being, do I need certain non-material things? You know, we're all comfortable with the idea that as a human being, I need certain material things. You know, I need oxygen, I need food and water, and even, you know, we, we're comfortable with the idea that we need sleep and, and that sort of thing. 
but do as a human being, how much leeway is there for me to become independent of the need for things like belonging, respect, and love? I would and just, status. Yeah. And for me, that's a question that I don't fully know the answer to, but my hunch is that we're not completely, totally independent. No. I mean, I completely agree with you. We've gone into some very interesting areas, and I think this has been a, a, a fascinating conversation, and we've really done the full 360 in many ways. But just to, as the final few thoughts, so you said belonging and all those kind of things, but what I'm asserting is that actually this understanding intrinsically gives us of belonging with everyone and everything because essentially at our core my <laughs> being is it sometimes yes. described is the same as yours but then you did say status now status to me is just mental hierarchies i think we can do without status there's this great great book called the spirit level and all it is is it's a set of graphs where it takes the wealthy societies in the world that are more status-driven, that are more unequal. So, you know, the US, for example, very unequal wealthy society. And then we're kind of number two, and then it goes down or ends up at Denmark and those sort of places, which are wealthy societies, but they're not as status-driven as us. So they've got these 20 countries on the x-axis. And then on the y-axis, they've got every measure of well-being that you can think of, you know, drug addiction, alcoholism, early death, teenage pregnancies, education. And the graph is exactly the same in every society, that the more equal you are, the better off people are. So when you say status is a bad thing, we're in complete agreement there. And, and even, you know, the, the fact that we don't like it is kind of irrelevant compared to the quality of the scientific work that illustrates that this is in fact the case. Yeah. My question would be, is there something in our human nature that we have to guard against that drives us towards status? And this for me is the question, is that are essentially, are we blank slates? Are we infinitely malleable? Or do we have flaws? Are we flawed creatures in some ways, but with the possibility of redemption? And that redemption comes from self-consciousness and awareness and learning. Yeah. And for me, that's the question is, can we ever shake off our human desires for things like status? And, you know, can I ever be free of those or am I continually managing them? So what is it? It's believed to be and you'll know better than me, what, a quarter of a million years that we've had the cortex online? Yeah. See, I, I have a different definition. of Consciousness means something different to me. But, but right. okay, but the thinking mind, should we say, right? Right, right. Right, okay. okay. So the yeah. thinking mind, what Steve Peters calls human, yeah. what Danny calls... Yeah. Um, System two. System yeah. two. So that's been on for like a quarter of a million years, whatever, right? Yeah. So we've evolved into that. And during that process perhaps we've evolved to have like a self-image and perhaps at some point in the future, we might evolve to rise above that. And then we could separate ourselves from our animalistic instincts of status, of hierarchy, of hoarding, of yes. uh, I'm all right, Jack, but the, my next door neighbor, let him, let him starve. I don't care. You know, that, yeah, that yeah. scarcity, yeah. all those kind of things. That would be an evolved place. We're clearly not there yet, right? But maybe at some point in the future, that, that yeah. may happen. 
Anyway, yeah. I mean, I don't know. What, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a vision. But listen, it'd be rude of me to not leave the last word to you, as you're my guest. So the, I'm going to hand over to you for the last word. What I've particularly enjoyed about this conversation is that we've got to have a complex conversation. You know, so for sure, it was nice to talk about the rules and all of that. But it was actually nice to try and apply them because we're not in perfect alignment here. We yeah. don't totally agree with each other. But where I'm thinking of as well, it would actually be nice to kind of carry on this conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than, oh, well, I can't wait to just never no. see you again, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think that sort of hopefully speaks to the fact that this has been a successful conversation. Yeah. That while even now we still don't fully agree, yeah. I feel like I've learned something. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've had the opportunity to reflect on some things that I actually already knew. And also had a good time and got to know someone along the way. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, maybe we shouldn't even aim for a kind of no. You know, we don't. We don't need it. a resolution, do we? We yes. just need a. Yes. No, I, I I agree with that. Listen, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I mean, we were on. <laughs> we we were chatting for half an hour trying to get the uh, audio fixed before we'd even yes. started. So we we've, we've had a long chat, and I, and I think yeah. you know having chats like this are. It's a real pleasure. It's something yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoy doing, and it's for it's, me too. It's connection, isn't it? And it that's, is. I think um, I think you say this in the book. You know, it's something that we all we all need and we all crave. And and yeah. and I, look, we can definitely agree on that. And I like and I, I, I'd like to <laughs> echo it back at you. I, I feel like I've got to know you, and I'd like to um, give you a bid. And please don't feel that it needs to be uh, in any way reciprocated. But Chelsea are lucky to have you, Tim. You're an emotionally intelligent, <laughs> oh. likable guy clearly a deep thinker and uh my best friend is a chelsea fan so i taunt him for that often but you know they well, are lucky. please pass on his <laughs> my appreciation to him i will do i will do that but listen it's been a real real pleasure talking to you tim i've really really enjoyed it i really enjoyed reading your book i think there's some fantastic brilliant reflections and what really struck me as well was how much you've been touched by your upbringing for example in south africa and your ability to reflect on parts of yourself and say hang on challenge your own thinking and and you do that even within the book and i think that's pretty rare i take my hat off to you for that as well so listen a great book 10 rules for talking an expert's guide to mastering difficult conversations i would recommend it highly a very lovely man and i've really enjoyed talking to you tim so it's been a pleasure and i think you're only down the road you know fitchum i mean worcester park so uh, okay, maybe just we, can, the maybe we can continue this over a All beer right. sometime. Uh, I, I like the sound of that. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll, I'll take you up on that bid. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Right. Tim yeah, Hartman, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the final episode of 2021. I hope you enjoyed it and were able to glean some useful tips for navigating difficult conversations. Tim is a really lovely bloke and his book is excellent. So if there is someone you know who struggles with difficult conversations and you're wondering what to get them for Christmas, Tim's book, 10 Rules for Talking, could be just the ticket. I'd love to hear your thoughts about our conversation before I shut down all my social media channels and my email for my Christmas break. So get in touch quickly at Simon Mundy on social media or drop me an email via my website at simonmundy.com. Also, please do sign up for my newsletter Monday on Monday. Each week, I share two lessons I've learned from nearly 200 of these conversations dating back over three years 
as well as a brief summary of the week's podcast episode. That will fire up in the new year with some golden tips for firing out of the starting blocks like Usain Bolt. So head to simonmundy.com to sign up. It's all good, valuable stuff. It won't clog up your inbox, I promise. Anyway, thank you for your support this year and for listening to the show, as well as for all your kind messages and emails. They're all hugely appreciated. I hope you get time to switch off and take it easy over the next few weeks. I will be back in the new year. But in the meantime, have a Merry Christmas. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.